Hello and welcome to the Granter Podcast. I'm Ted Hodgkinson and today I'm delighted to be joined by one of Granter's best of young British novelists for Stephen Hall. We talked about his first novel, The Raw Shark Texts, a formerly playful work that follows the narrator's piecing together of a shatteringly traumatic memory which manifests as a textual shark and also crucially features a cat called Ian. We also discussed how the internet is disrupting the possibility of a continuous narrative thread in a novel, and how that is informing his second book, The End of Endings. Stephen, thank you for coming to join me in the in the basement. It, I was just saying a moment ago, it feels rather like we're in one of your stories here. We've got the microphones all rigged up, and we're in a sort of chamber. Chamber of books, yeah, it's fantastic. <laughs> um, it's a real pleasure to um, have you on the list. And what, what does it what does it feel like for you? What does it mean? Um, it kind of means everything. I mean, I remember getting the last list ten years ago and sitting reading it in bed and making a vow to myself that I would do everything to try and get onto that list and to be included in it. It's such a massive thing. I was saying before, I can't I can't actually think of a bigger thing <laughs> for me at the moment personally than to be included on this. It's so fantastic. That's so wonderful to hear, and um, the vow has been made, so... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's it's wonderful. Um, so, um, you've, you've... This extraordinary novel, which I, which I finished reading recently, the Raw Shark text, is um, genuinely hard to make comparisons to other books. I mean, I think that there are, there are some really interesting influences that play out, um, mm-hmm. um, and one I kind of wanted to start with... Um, and something that I kept coming back to when I was reading your work is something that Borges said about a text being full of other potential texts. Texts. So, yeah. Um, and I think that in your piece in the issue as well, um, there's this sense of the possibilities puncturing through other texts and the way that histories can become kind of embedded in each other. Um I think I'm right in saying that Borges might be an important writer for you. Is he someone you come back to, and is that an idea that that resonates for you? Oh yeah, he absolutely is. Um, yeah, something that I'm really fascinated with, and probably always will be, is the the physicality of the text and the history of the text. I guess as well. I mean, Rorschach. You say it's not like a lot of other things, but actually it's made of a lot of other things, and hopefully in some places those other things show through. Mm. It was uh, it's exciting to to write a book that plays around with what memory and how we kind of construct the world together through the way that we think about it and shared cultural touchstones, I guess, is to sort of start to build the story through those things. And so those texts kind of weather through the book like fossils, hopefully, anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the things that does make it um, quite exceptional for me, or, or, or at least rare, is the way that you turn the trauma of, of a, a memory that's painful, destructive memory, let's say, into a, almost a caper. <clears throat> it's an in, You turn an internal <clears throat> story outwards. And I think that um, it's certainly something that they... The, they tell you can't do it writing uh, in writing workshops. So I think it's um, dramatized in a really interesting way. I mean, it did it did recall in some ways Wind Up Bird Chronicle by Murakami in the way that there's that metaphysical regression that happens when he goes down the well. Yeah. Um, and I 
I, I, I think it's a really interesting approach to to memory, to writing about memory, um, and the way in which memory can become its own sort of um, unspooling detective saga. Yeah, yeah. I think the the story has to work between two possibilities. It's the other thing about it as well. Writing about memory and like you say that sort of internalized space or event I mean, only really really worked for me when I thought about balancing the story between two different readings and so the text is is difficult to grasp it you know, the idea is that you can pick what you think is going on you know that is open to interpretation the way that all memory is and the reader is invited to actively be involved in making those decisions and the books written so that those decisions actually get harder to make and the leaps are bigger the further you go through it and so you're you have either I suppose a happy or I guess a fairly melancholy ending and depending on the the type of reader you are and the type of leaps you like and don't like making depends where you end up at the end of the book and the, the interesting thing is I've met a lot of people who've absolutely come to one reading of the book and could never see there were any others and in some cases been quite annoyed by the end of by their interpretation of the book one guy was really really frustrated with the way the book ended and he explained the story to me and it was something i never intended i never heard any, any other reading of the book and he was frustrated by by his own invention i love that making the leaps though i think as a writer you're extremely um democratic with your reader i mean there's there's a moment in the piece um, in the issue, um, there's an 1854 narrative which um, it kind of is the sort of negative imprint or um, runs underneath, let's say, a, a, a modern narrative and mm -hmm. they sort of puncture each other at a certain point. Um, but that character is very deferential to the reader and describes the reader as, as um, the judge, really, and the one the one who's in charge of, of what's happening. Yeah. Um, that's something really refreshing to me when I'm reading your work, especially in, in that piece, but also in the novel, the way that you privilege the reader with um, not drawing too strong a link between the signs you're putting out. I mean, you're, you give the reader a lot of credit. Hmm. I think you have to. I think you, you need to write for the kind of reader you want to be, you know. I always try and, oh, I think a lot of writers say that they always ultimately try and write the, the sort of book they would want to pick up off the bookshelf. Mm. And the books that I love to read are books that, that give you that space, that reward your creativity as a reader and, and try to, to match you, you know, that, that give you that room and give you the, give you the tools, mm. you know, rather than just hammering you over the head with every little thing, they just kind of set you free in the mm. story. Let's talk a bit about the books you picked up when you were younger and how you how you became a writer. Um, were you always a reader, and did you, you know, which books set you free when you were growing up? I was always a reader. Um, I guess I've got my mother to thank for that. She always read. We had this thing from being from being quite young is that lunchtime was always reading time. People always really cross when you read at meal times, but this was always a thing in our family that you had a quiet hour when you ate your lunch where you could read your book and everyone had a book. It was just what happened in our house. My mum was a huge horror fan, so I'd, I'd pretty much read all of Stephen King by the time I was about 10 or something. Nice. Massively inappropriate, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, so it was great. So it was just, it was just something that was always there in my life. 
Fantastic. And then, so at what point did you start to think maybe I could be a writer, or did you were you always scribbling away, and and then you just kind of realised, or? Well, I actually, I guess looking back, it was staring me in the face, but I actually thought I was an artist for a long time, because mm-hmm. I spent a lot of time drawing. Um, as a child, almost all of my time drawing, and that sort of naturally led me and the people around me to think you should probably be an artist or going to design or something, and I followed that for a long time, and um, I mean it's something I'd like to go back to one day but I came to realise after I'd slowly started to shift towards writing that what I'd actually been doing was constructing narratives, just visual ones and it wasn't until I was at university I did fine art at university and um, I was working with a lot of text and visual images and visual structures um, you know, visual structures of language and these things started to develop narratives and started to become more complicated and I gradually started to realise that I was writing fiction so <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't really so much that it was something that I'd always thought I'd quite like to do it, it kind of snuck up on me and I realised I should have been doing it all along afterwards right. <laughs> But the visual the visual certainly not left your work I mean, the, the, I was wondering and marvelling when I was reading um, Rorschach how um, how you I wondered how you compose because um, there's such delicacy in placing um, for anyone who's not read the book there are these um, uh, graphic um, moments in, in the novel as in literally graphic where yeah. a, a shape is made out of, of words and, and you know some of these are um, creatures that are sort of deep sea creatures that are made out of a, a kind of gristly piece of language mm-hmm. and uh, and then there's uh, obviously a rather terrifying shark that leaves yeah. through the text um, so I mean, how do you compose and do you feel that you're always sort of breaking the mould a bit as a novelist? Cause I think I've come to this from quite a strange angle which helps me, I mean you said earlier that Rorschach didn't really feel to fit too closely with any other book and I think that's probably just because of the angle I've come to books from. It's quite different. I'm always thinking about the visual and, and the physical book. You know, the, the physicality of of uh, the page is really important to me. And um, but all the the other thing that's really important is that all the images in Rorschach are all made on word, like the rest of the text. Right. There's I experimented with playing around with Photoshop and doing much more complicated, almost illustrations but the problem was that then there were illustrations and it was just an illustrated book and for it to work as part of the text it needed to actually be part of the text so all I mean a few of them have been manipulated a little bit but pretty much all of the visual stuff is made um, in the same document as the text is written so it's there on the page Wow, fantastic Um, and we we were talking just briefly before the podcast as well about the other, some of the other projects that you're you're working on because as a storyteller, um, I suppose today there are, there are a, a number of avenues that people can can take can go down uh, and you're working on a film at the moment and I wonder if you could just explain a little bit about that because it just sounds fascinating. Yeah, I'm adapting the the first piece I ever had published actually is called Stories for a Phone Book that was in um, New Writing and. Um, it's another visual piece. It was a, a double-page spread, uh, set out like an old telephone directory. So you had a list of alphabetical names, and then a line of text, and then the phone number. And it looked it looked very much just like a, a phone directory, except if you look closely where the addresses should be, there was just one line of description about every single character. And so I'm adapting that into um, 
an interactive film film or TV hybrid, I guess, into an app where you'll be able to... Uh, the interface will be the same as the story, but you'll be able to interact with the names and um, see parts of the story. Uh, so we're, we're sort of in the early stages of developing that now, which is really exciting. I can, I'm imagining all the people you're going to make miss their tube stops when they're looking <laughs> at this thing. It sounds fascinating. Um, so I just want to talk a little more about some of your influences, because as you said, I, I do think that Rorschach is very... Um, it's, 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 it certainly is a mold breaker for me, but at the same time, it's, it's composed of... It's deeply textual as well. There's um, Paul Oster, there's um, uh, Murakami, as I mentioned, the Calvino, Borges. Uh-huh. Um, and even even though it's dismissed in a sort of offhand way, there's also a bit of Conan Doyle. Mm. Uh, <laughs> Mycroft, obviously, Ward is sort of an echo, I think, of, yeah. of, of Mycroft and, uh, in those stories. And so... Um, it's just interesting that um, you mentioned that you came at literature from a different angle. You weren't really conscious of deviating from a path, and yet at the same time, it's you're immersed in all of these writers, and you're, it's it's something that's clearly um, peopling your stories all the time. Um, yeah, um, I think I'm just. I think the truth of the matter is that all stories are made of other stories, and all writers are made of other writers, and. Yeah, so you have three ways you can go. You can either just not think about that at all, which is fine, mm. or you can drive yourself crazy about it, trying to write something that no one else has ever thought of and go mad in an attic. <laughs> or you can look at that as an opportunity and and bring those things in a little more fully into into sort of finding a, a type of story where you can you can play around with that and discuss it, which hopefully is what Rorschach is. The whole idea of memories and the things that we think and the ways that we see the world are all really made up with of our experiences and the books that we've read and the people that we've known and these things come out in ways we don't always expect so the book but tries to tries to play around with that and tries to mimic that mm. it's a novel with with a great deal of heart and i think one of the the emotional linchpins is um clear aims and who is the character that eric sonderson the second uh is uh, was or is in love with who who um, is no longer around absent um, was it a difficult novel to write in that sense was it a sort of emotionally um, difficult experience because it's quite um, it's, there's a lot about loss in there and there's a lot about um, bereavement of a certain kind and also guilt of yeah amazing. yeah it was a hard book to write I don't think anyone's ever asked me that before but yeah, yeah. it was I mean there were times writing it that I had to stop because it it got a bit much and I don't know whether that's just me or that's something most writers go through that sometimes you almost feel like you're going too far like you're inflicting terrible things on people that don't deserve it and you almost need to back away and despite obviously being fully aware that these people don't exist at all there's an, there's an element of um, being a terrible creator to do such a thing but it was hard and Part, partly because it was really important, as you say, for the conceptual and, I guess, more intellectual elements of the book to work. The the emotional heart had to be really strong to counterbalance that. Mm. And so I did everything I could to make those sections with Eric and Cleo as real as humanly possible. Mm. But at the same time, one of the hardest things to write, I guess, in the book is a point quite near the end where... Eric is saying that you can't actually get the real on the page and all you can do is get 
people's either best or worst side, depending on whether you like them or not. And there's mm. a lot of self-editing. And, and that was the hardest thing, that the book really is about... is about um, all sorts of loss. It's about not only the loss of people, it's about the loss of any fixed point. I mm. think I think it, it's it's kind of a quest for a fixed point. It's mm. mm. beautiful. I, I, it's interesting as well that you're when you're saying that they're just Eric is saying that they're just characters, they're just words. Um, something I think your work interrogates or, or questions, explores is um, the point in which words do become actual or real, yeah. um, and you seem really interested in pushing that the. the the point after which Cleo Ames or or Eric himself or the characters in, in the end of endings um, tip over into the real and that's even though as you say um, they are constructions in a sense they're also invested with the real and that's something that a lot of the detective work in your in your stories and novel is trying to unravel it's well, what point does the word become real yeah yeah that's true um there's a lot there's a lot of cheating in the book as well there's a lot of the ideas of, of cheating what you're supposed to do and cheating cheating your bracket i guess you could say mm. there are things like cleo has a smiley face tattooed on a big toe because it's a way to you know do something that's fundamentally her and and represents her personality that will carry on after she's dead. Mm. Um, you know, it's a way of it's a way of escaping your bracket. Whether that's you know, as a mortal person, will eventually die, or or as a character on the page, you shouldn't be real. So I think there is a lot of that, and the shark itself is all about that. Yeah, um, Mycroft Ward is is uh, talking about cheating and cheating death. Yeah, is one of the most spectacular, um, spectacularly weird villains who who um, is a sort of hive mind who just he, he starts as a sort of uh, a, a gallant a sort of hussar mm. character in the, the charge of the light brigades sort of mold and then decides I'm not going to die and 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 uh, and creates a sort of map of his personality which is then exported to another person and then exported and exported and um, uh, it, it it's a really um, heightened and elaborate um, it, it makes it really does make you question what an afterlife is mm. and what kind of an after, what any kind of afterlife is and it's not it's not um i think your work also plays with the line of spirituality and at what point someone becomes a spirit or a um a ghost yeah um well text is a lot about that isn't it you know re- writing about people mm. is very much there's a I think there is a spiritual element there because it's an act of preserving, saving something and keeping it alive. Mm. A lot of the book also, it says a lot that things are true or things only exist from, depending on the angle you choose to look at them, but I think that's true of everything. Mm. You know, um, the whole idea of the flow of information and, you know, the depths of the unconscious, all these water metaphors. Mm. You know, the idea only works because we can look at that language in a certain way and it makes a strange sort of sense. Mm. And so, yeah, I think the idea of that preser- preservation of self, that, that that cheating from a certain point of view, is something I'm really interested in. Mm. And I think, you're right, it, it, it does have a real hold of me and I, there's a lot of it in the second book as well. Tell me a little more about the second book because it's it's a fascinating 
um, there's um, two timelines that are running um, and they and they seem to sort of weave in and out of each other in some ways but they're not they're never it's never explicit or, or, or kind of um, as you say the leap is there to be made yeah um, is that how the rest of the novel will move yeah absolutely there's actually um, four timelines hmm. in the full book and they're all named after the seasons so uh, in the issue we have autumn and spring and there's also summer and winter mm-hmm. and they um, the book is entirely circular like the extract is and um, it, it, it's really about well, it's about a lot of things but it's really about the end of, of of linear time and linear structure with the coming of the internet and the fact that you can read sideways I mean the fact that the text runs right way up on one page and wrong way up on the other sort of encourages cheating anyway that you, <laughs> you encourage to sort of cheat sideways and look how it connects and the whole book is about the fact that things are increasingly losing their beginnings and endings and there are characters who are fascinated and obsessed with structure and timelines and one thing coming after another there's a, a a writer who goes mad because this becomes increasingly impossible in the modern world that he can no longer contain build a, a story as a single tower from cover to cover because everything leaks out and mm. things become corrupted and ends fall into beginnings and the whole book really is I guess it's sort of a a temporal whirlpool of things mm. getting mixed up and it's all about yeah it's all about how I feel about about the late age of print I guess and the the early age of digital text and a lot of things that I'm interested in to do with time and and identity and how we see ourselves and how we're going to see ourselves in the future when we come to a point where our narratives aren't constructed in a linear fashion anymore. I mean, our internal narratives. Mm. Um, arguably, they're not entirely constructed that way now, but it will be. It will be so much less the case for internet natives. There's there's a, um, a kind of narrative splitting that happens, isn't there, online? I mean, a, a kind of polyphonic. Everything becomes um, fragmented, mm. and you see that in the in some of the novels. Um, that are coming out more recently um there's an apprehension of this or there's a there's a recognition of it in in the way that voices are breaking up and and you don't have as you say this big monolithic story running throughout i mean are you um on a frivolous note are you are you a procrastinator are you distracted easily by the internet do you cheat <laughs> in that yeah, way absolutely <laughs> yeah, i'm drawn sideways all the time <laughs> it's my biggest failing <laughs> But um, yeah, there is, and the, the the new book definitely is 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 all about that. Mm. It's all about what that means for what I feel that means for books and what it fe- means to tell stories. Mm. And there's an 1854 section and there's a 2054 section, um, which also kind of parallel each other. The 1854 is the height of the Industrial Revolution and the coming of the new machine that's going to change everything, and then. 2054 section is about is very kind of post print hmm. isn't I um, one of the things I found interesting about the 1854 section is the way it very closely mirrors our own time in the sense of it, there are certain points in history perhaps um, more than we care to admit that feel as though they're on the brink of, of a great discovery of the new that's going to usher in a new phase of 
of human understanding and and we i think we have a, something like that attitude towards technology at the moment the way that it's it's going to usher in a new dawn of of as you say the you you were just saying the end of print mm. um and that the 1854 section feels as though there is this you know the marvel at the machine and the yeah. machine when i was reading the 1854 section i kept thinking of iPhones and iPods and iPads and things and you know that we all have in our pockets and and use all the time. Absolutely. Um, but is that what drew partly to that period of time, or is it just something that surprised you? No, it, it absolutely did. Um, the, the parallels are, are pretty strong there, and also that particular year is a really interesting one in that you know we're deep into the arrival of the machine and mechanization, but we're still a few years away from Darwin. So you have this really interesting time where um, modern technology and religion exist side by side, and part of what happens in the story is actually all based on fact. A lot of it actually happened. Mm. So th there, there is a certain element of, of picking things that actually happened and drawing imaginary threads between them. Mm. One really interesting element of the piece is... Um, there's a lot of stillness in the modern narrative, as in writing about a wife who's asleep mm. uh, and being watched um, by a, a kind of anonymous group of of internet viewers. Um, it's it's really interesting to read a story that that is that focuses so much on stillness, um, which in some ways seems like the opposite of narrative. Or um, it's it's quite a um, brave thing to do I think in some ways to have a story in which someone is watching another person sleep um, did that ever I mean I, I I love that you didn't um, shy away from that but is um, it seems to be very much perhaps at odds with that fragmentation that you're talking about you know that, that splitting of, of narratives up and I, I think again as with Rorschach it feels like that sort of the emotional core comes from that section mm. as well um, yeah, I think something really interesting came into the sphere of narrative and storytelling when we got reality TV, mm. especially with the first series of Big Brother where you could watch 24-7. And what you essentially had there happening in a very popular real time with millions and millions of people watching was practically characters doing nothing mm. for hour after hour. And that's something that... It, fascinates me because we, we tend to skip over those things when we're telling a story, certainly as you say when we're writing one because you know mm. why wouldn't you, you know you wouldn't discuss all the things that didn't happen before the next exciting yes. bit but actually these things have a place in how we how we follow narrative now that first series of Big Brother was all about narrative and yet it was, it was told in a very different way mm. you know, there was a lot of watching and waiting and things yeah, things coming in that very fragmented way out of order, suddenly something would happen after hours and hours of nothing happening, which makes the something much more fascinating. And I think something that interested me a lot was was the, the fact that when... What's the best way to say this? Um, when you're telling a story, like, as I said, in Rorschach, you know, this thing that these characters... All you can do is get the best or worst side of somebody down on a page. Is is that still impossible? You you get all of it 
you can watch that screen and absolutely get everything. It's completely unfiltered. It's not composed into a narrative. And the narrative in the book is obviously about that, but it is possible to watch the pure unfiltered stream mm. outside of somebody putting it into a story for you, which, mm. you know, had to be a part of this book, had to be a part of how we look at how we understand stories and narrative now, because I think it's an important development. It's, there's a really interesting crossover with the 1854 narrative when um, the narrator talks or asks his wife something and she's in a photo frame. And Oh, you spotted that. Yeah. No one else spotted that. Yet. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I, I really like that because it, it echoed r- really subtly what's happening in that Big Brother-esque mm. um, viewing situation because even though um, it's a fixed image there's an element of him watching her in stillness in the same way um, and a tenderness to it as well you kind of get a sense of him being a bit adrift yeah. um, from her um, not as specifically um, because we don't know more about her but then yeah no, it's really interesting and I think those are the kinds of leaps that I really liked making in, yeah. the, in the piece but yeah, um, but yeah uh, going back to that thing about, about real time Twitter of course now and Facebook are all entirely real time mm. you know there's just something that just felt like it was important and timely to, to tell the story uh, not to tell the story in real time but to acknowledge those real time bumps mm. this might be a bit of an anarchic question but are you ever tempted to move your stories entirely onto Twitter or, or some I mean obviously you know you you're a writer and one has to make a living as well but you know but um it strikes me that that um a lot of these stories are always sort of bursting their banks a bit or or wanting to and um does twitter present a an avenue that entices you and you think i'm going to write um not a novel in fragments on twitter or on facebook or obviously you might want a bit more curatorial space than 140 characters but Um, well, Rorschach has um, a series of unchapters that don't exist within the book. Mm. You can search out. Some of them are in the real world, some of them are online. Mm. And only a small percentage of them have been found so far. There are more out there. And the idea is that um, eventually there'll be more words in the unchapters than there are in the novel. Mm. So I do love this idea that, that the story can kind of bleed out into the world. Mm. But the second book... I guess it's sort of a love letter to the physicality of books. Mm. It's, it's about everything I love about books and, and the, the object and and what what that means for us, what what our relationship to the book is, I guess. And so it's really important for me that that book manages to exist. It's all about it being able to exist within two covers. So mm. so it feels like this is this is the thing I have to do now. But I think I think the next one I might do might be electronic only because I'd like to there's some things I'd like to do that you could only do with a uh, text that is so slippery it can change on the page mm. and trick you but uh, I think I think what I'd really like is it to eventually be a trilogy with Rorschach the end of endings the second one and then the third one which I've already got mapped out which will only be electronic mm. so when you say you've got it mapped out I mean what how uh, are we talking 50 moves ahead here 100 I mean how how far do you work ahead I'm always in awe of people who, who have any sense of what they might do next um, I guess I don't mean mapped out as in 
I have a I have a plan to work from. I just mm. have a really good feeling for it, and I know I know what it's about. I know what's going to happen. I know how the text is going to behave. And the thing that really excites me is the text is going to do something. Which I'm not going to say yet, <laughs> but that no one else has thought of doing quite yet. So oh, hopefully God. I'll get to it in time. But there's yeah, I think on my on my books folder there's about six books set up ready to go but the end of endings is such a massive one mm. that it's taking me so long but um you know there's that thing that when it occurs to you that you could try and write something you can either go ahead and do it or regret it forever <laughs> <laughs> um yeah there's a story about philip roth when he was considering whether to write the human stain mm. and he says to himself fuck it <laughs> do you ever have a moment like that well that's exactly it isn't it I mean you either you either quietly back away into the shadows and hope yeah. nobody saw you thinking of the thing yeah. or you have to charge head at it mm. and and I know part of my nature is that I'm 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 highly disposed towards regret so <laughs> so, so, uh, so yeah I, I, I spend a lot of time regretting things and I thought if I if I came up with this immense very very hard for me to pull off book and then didn't try and write it then I'd never forgive myself so mm. so it's just eating my life <laughs> devoured, <laughs> devoured by a shark really a yeah. regret yeah. It's, it's um <laughs> but it's uh oh man I I think it's interesting though that if you set yourself a really outlandish challenge then you can't really say no to it Absolutely. And the other thing as well is you've got to, after a first book, I think you've got to pitch your next one as far away, at least initially, as possible. Mm. Because those ideas, those things that you're interested in, the things that you care about, will find their way back into the story and find a different way to come through. And actually, I think the first and second books are a lot closer than I ever thought they would be. Mm. But if you don't, at least for me, if you don't initially take that run into the distance and set your flag down mm. somewhere else then you run the risk of telling the same story again um i wonder I, well there was I, <laughs> this is a silly question but um is ian the cat going to make a reappearance in the trilogy ian isn't but gavin definitely is gavin's uh, ian's missing brother who most of the characters in rorschach have missing counterparts right and um you know, there are two Eric's, there are mm. the female characters, there are... There's Ian the cat and also Gavin the cat, who's referenced about five times, who's... The idea that they had two cats and now there's only one cat, and right. what happened to the other cat? And, yeah, the other cat is coming back. Oh, I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> Ian was one of my favourite characters in the book. I think he's, he's... He's a very characterful fellow. I think he's quite... He, he's almost flirtatious at points. Like, he's a little bit flighty you don't quite know what he's going to do and I, I i think that's a pretty accurate portrayal of some of the cats i know anyway yeah yeah he's he's um we're talking about fixed points i guess he's the the closest thing to a well-adjusted solid thing in the entire book and, mm. you know i think he i think he actually anchors the book yeah in a lot of ways i think he's, it, it would be very difficult if he wasn't there yes do you um i don't want to make the crass distinction between life and work but you, do you own a cat have you or do you i grew up with cats yeah, yeah. I, I own a dog at the moment which um 
which is interesting. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I grew up with cats, and um, it had to be a cat. It had to be a cat in this story because there's just. I think something so nice about the only thing that this guy has left his entire life has been wiped out. Everyone he loved and everything he knew, knew he's lost him, mm. apart from this one animal. And this one animal has to be a grumpy tomcat that doesn't even like him. <laughs> so, so he loves this creature that doesn't even like him. And I just think that's so funny and tragic. <laughs> that's, I think it's a really funny book. And often the moments of great tenderness come in these kind of barbed comments that Cleo <laughs> makes or that Ian, you know, Ian seems mainly indifferent. I mean, he, he as you say, he's he's like got a bit of a cantankerous sort of personality. Um, seems fairly nonplussed by a lot of what's going on. Yeah. Um, and that seems to be a source of great affection. People, um, actually more people mention the cat than mention the shark when I talk about <laughs> the book. And the bit they mention most often is near the very end of the book where the cat's scared for the first time. Mm. And... Um, People really, really worry about the cat. My agent, when he was reading the book, stopped at that point and emailed me and said, if the cat dies, I'm not reading any more of this book. <laughs> and and uh, yeah, I think that moment really worked for a lot of people because the cat is the one, the one thing in the whole book which is utterly, as you say, utterly indifferent. And when mm. the cat becomes scared, you know things are really serious. Yes. I mean, in that respect, um, it reminds me a lot of Alice in Wonderland um, because... In, in Alice, there's those bits where she says, um, I think it's Tab Tabitha, is it, the cat? Um, she always refers to the cat as a point of sanity. Mm. You know, she always says, like, well, this is, you know, the, the mock turtle and things are happening, and, well, my cat wouldn't approve of this. Yeah. You know, yeah. and the cat is the point of... Yeah, it's, it was intentional. Ian is, is meant to be, like, the anti-Cheshire cat in that he does, mm. he never grins, he just scowls all the time, but mm. he fulfills pretty much the same role. <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant. I, um, I, we could, we could talk... Um, and talk, but I, I just want to uh, um, maybe just ask you one final question. Um, so, talking about this new novel being a love letter to the text, yeah. um, if you were um, suddenly in a in a in a bunker like this one, and you had to take a couple of books with you, um, which which books would they be? And also, a sort of second question to that would be: um, Did you have a really important English teacher at all in your life or a teacher that really turned you on to writing or it sounds like you were kind of homeschooled a bit in, in that department but. yeah no I, I, I really never did I guess it was just my just my mother um, mm. who made reading very natural and very exciting and oh, we went pretty seamlessly from her reading me stories to me reading my own books. I remember being very proud of me when I finished 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea when I was little. And, and it was just something we always did, which was, which was better in a way. I mean, in terms of having my mind blown, I guess, it came a lot later when I'd been trying to write for a year or two when I read the New York Trilogy, Paul Auster, which, you know, you talk about a book that's at once intensely readable and intensely clever and mm. you know that's that's the one for me and because I read that and I thought because until I'm really without really thinking about it I guess I kind of thought you could write a, an experimental intellectual novel which which would be rewarding in that sense but be quite cold mm. or you could write um, 
an emotional dramatic novel I like you say a caper something that's exciting mm. in that sense but it never even occurred to me that anyone might be insane enough to try and put them together and even pull it off which I think he does in the New York trilogy exceptionally well and so it was another one of those things that once you'd seen someone else do it, he's like, do you back quietly away from that or do you, do you go all out? And hey, you've got to go all out, haven't you? Yeah. <laughs> I'm very glad you did go all out. <laughs> um, it's a pleasure talking to you and congratulations on making the list. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Grunter Podcast, available for free download on iTunes, SoundCloud and selected British Airways flights. To subscribe to Grunter, please do visit our website, grunter.com forward slash subscribe.